This evening's reading is from Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. For I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And may God meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Vicar, and it's lovely to be bringing God's Word to you tonight. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at this uh, section of the Bible for the next few minutes together. Lord God, whether we're familiar with these things or very new to them, we pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of the truth, the truth about you. And we ask this, that we might know joy and contentment and generosity, but most of all, so that we might know the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that is found in him. Amen. Well, if you are a guest and you've come along tonight, the reading probably confirmed all your worst suspicions about church. What does church do when visitors arrive? Talk about money, and in just a minute, the plates will come round with a, with a guilt trip message and some soft music behind it, and uh, your wallets will be encouraged. Actually, we're not going to pass around the plate at all. We don't. Uh, we're we looked at that passage just because we're working through this particular letter in the Bible and we happen to get here. Actually, if you're a visitor, we don't want your money. Um, if you've got a spare million, I'm sure the treasurer will take it, but the, the church is funded and supported actually solely by the people sitting around you, uh, those who come regularly. But, but there are two good reasons for giving your full attention to the reading we just had from the Bible, whether you're a regular at the church or you have just come here with absolutely no interest in Christian things, but because you're a good friend or family member. And that is, well, firstly, few things reveal what's going on in my heart quite so much as what I do with my wallet. And so in amidst all the kind of relentless, frenetic activity and noise of life, here's actually an opportunity just to pause uh, to slow down and to look inside and to analyze. Like an, this passage operates like an x-ray machine on my heart as it talks about how I think about money. Secondly, as well as 
taking a deep look at ourselves, this passage, well, it reveals the key, I think, to two things that all of us probably want. Contentment and generosity. All of us would love to feel settled and content and at peace with what we have and in life. And I guess all of us would love to be a bit more generous than we are, not to feel so when we're forced (laughs) to open our wallets. And here's the headline. Here's the headline. A real faith in Jesus enables you to live with a full heart and open hands. There you go. A real faith in Jesus enables you to live with a full heart and with open hands. We'll work through and see how we get there. Firstly, uh, Christ Jesus fills our hearts with contentment. Now, if you're joining us, as I, as I indicated, we're, we've been working our way through um, this letter to the Philippians, written by the historical man, Paul, the Apostle Paul. And we know from history that by this time, probably around AD 62, he is in prison in Rome, about to face trial before Emperor Nero. That's not a promising thing, is it, really, uh, standing before Nero, especially if you're a Christian. But that's the, that's the situation that Paul writes from. And he's writing to a church, a group of Christians, who he met uh, some years earlier in northern Greece. In fact, he started the church. He told them about Jesus. A number of people believed the message, and a church was formed. That's what happens. And now he's writing to encourage them. And now, finally, at the end of the letter, in the fourth chapter, we find out why he's written, what's prompted him to write. And what we find out is it's a thank you letter. It's a thank you letter. A thank you letter is still a thing, not text messages. I mean, like a proper, you know, pen and paper. Can you remember how to write cursive script? Is it still a thing? It should be. If my childhood was ruined by being forced to show how gracious and grateful I was by wasting my time on Boxing Day, so should everybody else's. The, um, it's a good thing. Gratefulness is a good thing. And as thank you letters go, though, this is a strange one, at least to our ears. Look at verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you had been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Dear Philippians, thank you so much for your gracious, generous gift uh, of finance. But to be honest, I could have coped fine without it. You know what? It really made no difference to me at all. Thank you. What? It just sounds rude. But actually, Paul's attitude to them is not rude at all. If you flick back, you'll see right at the start, he loves these people. Uh, Page back, chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. And in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. I mean, firstly, he's in prison, about to face Nero and listen to his attitude. But do you see how warm he is towards these people? Now, Paul writes the way he does, not because he's ungrateful, but because he wants to take the opportunity to teach them something very, very important. He wants to show them how to find contentment in life, fulfillment. Now, contentment, as Paul writes about it, it is not being sort of listless and totally lacking in ambition, lying with the curtains drawn on the sofa in a onesie, surrounded by empty pizza boxes, just watching some 90s sitcoms on Netflix. It's it's not an ideal Christmas. It's, it's, um, you know, this is the Apostle Paul. This is a man of 
unbelievable ambition and drive. This is the man who is largely responsible for turning the entire Roman Empire upside down. And and listen to how he speaks in in chapter 3. We looked at this a a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 3, verse 13. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. That's not a man lacking in ambition. What he lacks is that kind of carping, grumbling, miserable dissatisfaction with my lot in life. That's what he lacks means he is not a hostage to circumstance. That's what he means by contentment. He means he's found a source of joy that is not tied to how well life is going. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. And it's not that it's He's got everything in life, fulfilling career, the relationship, physical health, great holidays. Do you notice it's, hey, look, I'm content whether I have those things or not, and I've known both. He's okay with what he has, and perhaps more strikingly, he's okay with what he doesn't have. Now, his main focus here is financial, but the words used are actually quite general. Literally, it's, uh, I am content whether brought low or overflowing. He's found something better, in other words, than everything working out. A source of joy that isn't drained when the good times end. So his heart is full, even when his bank account is empty. Note, though, he's learned to be content. It comes through practice, through actually going through ups and downs. It's like getting fit or bulking up, which I obviously know a lot about. You, you, know, you, you can't do it just by reading about it and agreeing wholeheartedly with the principles. You've actually got to do it. And nor do you just wake up one day and read something and think, wow, that's right, I am going to be content. Ta-da! I'm now content. How wonderful life is. It's, you have to work it through, live it out, embed it in the daily nitty-gritty of life. And the challenges of plenty and want are different. So in one sense, you, if all you've ever known is want, well, perhaps you can learn to cope with it. But to know times of real abundance, times when you can eat out without thinking about it, and then times when, gosh, all you can afford is Tesco value beans, and that's pretty much it. To be content when you've known lots, Wow. That is something. Hard times can teach me to be thankful, even while I work hard to improve them. And good times, well, they can teach me to be grateful to God. But I have to learn the lessons. Now, verse 13 is up there with the most misquoted verses in the whole Bible. Literally, it says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And when you read it in context, it's obvious what it means. But lots of people read it as if it's saying, God will enable me to do whatever I want. Uh, The Fijian rugby team have got it stitched on their shirts, Philippians 4.13. Totally misapplies what it means. But when you've seen the size of them, you can understand why nobody's gone up and said, yeah, it's great. Love it. Looks wonderful on the shirts. Uh, The... um, 
this mug actually sums things up with uh, Philippians 4.13. Um, <laughs> and that's why, um, actually, the, the version that we've got, um, the slightly updated version, helpfully makes it clear, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. He's saying, look, I can be content. God doesn't enable me to lift a London bus. He enables me to to pay London rent and work a difficult job and yet not be seething with what everybody else has. I think the most important thing to notice is that contentment, though, doesn't come through a technique, a a well-being practice, but through a person. It's actually through Jesus Christ. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Who will the him be? Well, back in chapter 3, Paul wrote, 3 verses 7 to 9, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. In other words, Paul said, look, if I have Christ Jesus, I don't care what else I have. Jesus plus nothing equals everything in his economy. But that does raise the rather obvious question of why. Uh, Why does building your life on Jesus provide a contentment beyond anything else that we might look for or find? Put bluntly, what on earth is so great about Jesus? Well, as a Christian minister, I guess you kind of hope I'd have an answer for that. Um, And there's a lot that you could say. I mean, for one, Jesus is God, the ultimate source of goodness and true justice and love. And deep down, whether you call yourself a secular person or a religious person, we do long for some experience of transcendence, some connection with something beyond ourselves, an experience of the divine. As the French philosopher Pascal put it 400 years ago, to be human is to be haunted by a longing for a wholeness we feel we have somehow lost. There is a God-shaped hole in the heart of every human. And in Jesus, God has made himself accessible to us. It's the first thing to say. To build your life on Jesus is to be connected, not just to a Middle Eastern teacher of some moral relevance 2,000 years ago, but with the living God. But actually what I want to dig into a bit more is something that Paul has talked about throughout the letter of Philippians and that is summarized in the very, very last verse. We won't look at the last paragraph, but just the last verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace See, in the first century, the Apostle Paul discovered the same thing that these four who stood here earlier have found, namely that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of grace. And because he is grace, you can build your life on him and be content. Now, grace just means undeserved kindness. It's the difference between a salary and a Christmas present. You don't write a thank you letter when your boss pays your salary. If he makes you do that, it's an abusive boss, get out. It's You you deserve it. Grace is something you don't deserve, a gift. But everything else that you and I seek to build our lives on, everything else that I look to 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 find meaning and, and, and contentment has to be achieved or earned or attracted. Careers, relationships, reputations, and all of them can be lost as well. 
But Jesus is different because he's grace. He comes as a free gift. In the center of the letter, uh, Paul explained this. He said in chapter 2, Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, God the Son, gave up his privilege, his position, his power, gave it all up to become a human so he could be rejected by people like you and me, so he could die. Why? Because by dying, he could take the punishment you and I deserve so that we could be forgiven. That means, (laughs) what this means is God looked deep inside you and me and he saw our rebellious ingratitude towards our creator. He saw our selfish lovelessness towards other people made in his image, other humans. And God judged that you and I were worthy of eternal death. And that's really good news. And that makes you content. What? (laughs) Uh, Well, look, if God welcomed you and me because... Wow, you're just so wonderful. I mean, how could I spend eternity in paradise without you there? If that was God's attitude to welcome you and me in, then always there's the fear. What if I, what if I stuff up? What if God finally sees through the masks and sees what is festering in deep inside my heart? Will I lose it? Will, will this this thing of of knowing and being known by God be robbed away from me. You know, lots of us go through life relying on the fake it till you make it approach. Hope that you can do a good enough job acting in the interview or the first couple of dates that you somehow get taken on and and then hopefully by the time they start to find out some of the rougher edges, you're already pretty committed. You fake it till you make it. But Jesus' death for you and me means we don't have to fake it with God. It means God saw the very, very worst about you and me. In fact, God saw worse than I think about me. God saw me and thought, worthy of death. But his response was not then to reject. His response was to step into history and to die in our place. Now, if God has seen the very worst imaginable about you and responded by saying, I will save you so that you can be welcomed and enjoy eternal life and relationship with him. Well, then then it's not down to how good I am. So I can't lose it if I stuff up. It's not down to how promising I am. So I can't fail to live up to his promise. Instead, it's a gift of grace. And so the most precious thing in the world, to know and be known by the living God, Jesus Christ, is also the most secure thing in the world. You can build your life on it, certain, absolutely certain that it can't be taken away. Because you didn't earn it, so you can't lose it. 
And there's nothing God could find out about us that would make him change his mind. Because he already has said, you're worthy of death, but I love you. I'll take that death and give you life. The most precious thing in the universe is the most secure thing because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Look, put your trust in Jesus. You'll still long for food when you're hungry. You'll still long for human connection when you're lonely. You'll still long for a career that uses your talents when you're bored with your job. But that God-shaped hole that is the center of every human heart is filled. Fulfillment, peace, and contentment can take the place of anxiety and hopelessness and restless striving. And work can then just be work. Friends can be friends. Spouses can be lovers, partners in life. Those things don't have to complete me anymore. They don't have to make my life worthwhile. That job is taken by the only one who can truly bear that weight. God himself, the God of grace, Jesus Christ. Do you see why Christ Jesus fills our hearts with contentment? Well, secondly, much more briefly, Christ Jesus opens our hands in generosity. We shift really in the next few verses from uh, Paul's attitude of contentment to the Philippians' attitude, which is one of generosity. And Paul begins by celebrating their history, verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again. You sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Now, Paul was only in Philippi a short while, just long enough for a very diverse group of people to be convinced about the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, Just long enough, actually, for them to face some real suffering as Paul was thrown in prison and beaten and the church, too, faced real opposition for following Jesus. But after this very, very short visit, the church immediately started to give money generously to help fund Paul taking the gospel out to new towns further into Europe. And again, Paul is aware that his celebration of their partnership might actually make them think he's subtly asking for more. You know, it's the the messages you get from charities. Thank you so much for your generous donation of five pounds, which will enable three children to have access to clean water for one meal. It's incredibly kind of you. And such a tragedy that so many others will go without when a donation of just 260 pounds would pay for a well for the entire village. You know, okay... Your words say thank you, but everything about this is saying, give me more. And Paul is very careful to make sure he doesn't ask for more. But the main thing he does, actually, is to explain to us how this quite poor group of people were enabled to be so open-handed and generous. And it's that God will reward and God does provide. So in the future, God rewards and the present, God provides. Verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more, have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So God will reward in the future. He takes us to the bank and to the temple. Verse 17 is banking language. He says, look, the Philippians give sacrificially to support Paul's efforts, but the money is not lost to them when they give it away. It's earning compound interest in a heavenly bank account. And one day they'll have access to that account. 
Then verse 18 shifts the image. The the gift is like a fragrance of a thanksgiving sacrifice. The the sweet aroma of the sacrifice making God smile. Now, I've got absolutely no idea what the literal reality is behind the image of a heavenly bank account. You know, will we get a heavenly chip and pin card when we arrive in the new creation? No idea. God will work out the details. But I do know that God is incredibly generous. I mean, when Jesus was on the earth and a small boy gave him five loaves and two little fish, he fed 5,000 people with it. That's just the kind of metrics God operates on. God will richly reward. That's the, the key thing. He's delighted by their sacrifice now, and he will richly reward. And that enables them to be generous. But it's not just future rewards. They're generous because they're confident God provides in the present. Verse 19, um, Philippians 4.19, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. See how key Jesus is again? According to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. I mean, to be honest, the key point is that Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's generosity to us. In another of his letters to the church in Rome, Paul writes this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God was willing to give his own son the most precious being in the universe, to save unworthy sinners. Then we can be confident everything we truly need, God will provide. I wonder, did you see, uh, there was a report this week in the BBC about the new charitable initiative, uh, Giving What We Can. And a very smiley-faced person who was uh, um, quite pleased to be uh, interviewed and tell everybody how much he gave. Um, the, uh, what they didn't tell you is a, a report two years ago said that... Um, I think they found 31% of people admitted in 2019 to lying about how much they give to charity. So, But anyway, this is a global initiative to encourage people to give 10% of their income to charity. But what was striking in the article was how amazed the authors were. This is incredible. This is extraordinary. They're they're expecting people to give 10% of their income to charity. And some people are actually doing this. The truth is, Actually, giving 10% is just standard practice for Bible-believing Christians. Many give far, far more than that. I'm nervous about whether it's sensible to, to say this, but look, the only money we receive as a church is by the congregation. It's the only money. We have no um, legacies, trusts, buildings, or anything. It's just given by the congregation. Last year, the congregation gave around 900000 Many in the church are students or on lower income. Many give generously to other other causes too. And my point is not, wow, what an amazing church we are. It's the opposite. That's just normal. That is just normal. Of course it is. It's bog-standard Christian generosity. Because the God of the Bible is extraordinary. And so in ordinary, selfish, self-interested, like-to-spend-on-myself type people, meet this God reconnect with him through Jesus Christ. Well, well, we're made in his image. And so when we come back to him, we start to become more human, more generous, more like him again. Jesus unlocks our hearts, opens our hands, and we become, we become more like him, confident that he provides, 
and joyfully enjoying being what we are, which is generous people made in the image of a generous God. Look, where I want to end is this. What if all this is true, is the question I really want to, to ask. My guess is you'd love to be content. I think most of us would. Not a slave to keeping up with the Jones, not fussed by what friends and peers earn. Imagine how liberating that would be. Think what you'd do with your life if genuinely you were content with what you had and didn't feel the desperate need to keep up with the others. Wouldn't you love also to be more generous, to be able to give away freely, to feel joy about opening your hands to the needy rather than guilt that you don't and occasional grudging doing it? Look, Christianity is not primarily about money. It's really important we hear that. It's not primarily about money. It's about the forgiveness of your sins, pictured in baptism, being washed clean of sin and getting a new life, eternal life with God. But the reality, the truth of Christianity is seen in that it doesn't just change what you do on your Sunday. It, it even changes what you do with your wallets. They show who we are and what we're living for. And the irony is that when we live small, selfish, self-protective lives, we, we end up dissatisfied, actually, and anxious and obsessed with obs- amassing more. But when we encounter Jesus... We find God has been abundantly, shockingly, extravagantly generous to us. And our hearts are changed by his undeserved kindness and the security that gives us in Jesus. We become content and we become generous. If you know this already, then press on. Press on to know Jesus more. Live out, put into practice the contentment. Don't join in the grumble, whether it starts out there or from in here. And if not, I would urge you to follow in the footsteps of many here, including the four who stood up tonight. Find out whether, or whether it's true. If it is, it's the most wonderful message, a message that offers us eternal riches, freely, freely given through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him you have given us what our souls most need, which is the forgiveness that brings us back to you. Thank you that we have it securely, for it is a gift of grace. And thank you, therefore, that we can build our lives on knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and know that that can never be taken away. Thank you, too, that as we come to him, you open our hearts in generosity, and we pray that we would enjoy being more like you, as those who've received so much from you will be delight to give to others. And we ask this, that the truth, the reality of the gospel message of Jesus Christ might be seen by others, that they, too, might come to know Christ. Amen.